usually just as a warm-up, as a little exercise. I think you know it. So I'm going to give you like a word which has some sort of meaning or emotion, whatever. And I want you to, to tell me the first game that comes to mind, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. The word association. First word is lighthearted. Uh, Super Mario World is, is what I'll go with. Um, the second word is helpless. Helpless. That, Res- Resident Evil. That, that's where my, my head went. The third one is cautious. Cautious. Minecraft. Mm. Uh, independent. 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 Like ah my like I think I think my brain just defaults that when I when I don't know what to say it's gonna say total war so I'm gonna say Rome two total war. <laughs> <laughs> um, jubilant. Jubilant. Oh, man. I don't I don't feel jubilant when I play video games. Um, Interesting. Like literally, uh, I, I, I just just because the game's been on my mind lately is probably the only reason. But I have to say, Monster Hunter. <laughs> Monster Hunter, which one? Yeah, I'll go with the the most recent one, uh, Monster Hunter World. The sixth word is strong. I gotta go with uh, with uh, God of War. I'm gonna go with the very first God of War game because Kratos is a very strong character. So I'll go with God of War. Nice. Next one is melancholy. Melancholy. Something sad. Ah, brothers. Brothers. Uh, next one is comfortable. Comfortable. Super Mario Maker. Really? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's interesting. Um, the ninth word is going to be miserable. Miserable. Oh, um... This is uh, the, all, the first game that I always think of when someone with this would be Princess Natasha, which is a game Rob and I played for our YouTube <laughs> channel a long time ago, and it was the worst game I've ever played in my life. Uh, so Princess, Natasha, I think it was, I think it was a Game Boy Advance. Mm-hmm. And the last word is provoked. Provoked. My mind went right to a game where it has an ability called provoke, not not so much the emotion or, or, or provoking somebody, which feels not right. But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with World of Warcraft. If there's a theme to these conversations, I think it's, it's the role of games in people's lives okay um and the beginning is always a good place to start so can you tell me about your first gaming memories first gaming memories probably a lot a lot of it would be playing nes games at my cousin's place they they had the nes all all we had for the longest time was a coleco um and, uh, you know, I have some memories about the Coleco, but it was very, very dry games, you know, Pong and, and crap like that. So sometimes they don't they don't really hold memories so well for, for me. And then because those games were fun to play. But when I got to go to my cousin's place to play NES games, um, you know, that's where I first played Ninja Gaiden. Um, and, and eventually he got the Super Nintendo. We were playing like other cool games like Killer Instinct and stuff like that. Um, 
but uh, it's it, like first gaming memories would definitely be playing like NES games. And there's this one game, I, I like. I'm pretty sure it was a Charlie Brown game where you like compete in Olympic events. Um, and that that's one of the earliest gaming memories I have is playing that particular game. Um, it was it was a hard game, and it was always like you know hit left right really fast thirteen hundred times in in two minutes. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a very good game, but for some reason it created such competition uh, between myself, my brother, and my cousins who who played it, and uh, we would always try to outdo one another in in this Charlie Brown Olympic simulator game for NES. Um, so like that's that's probably one of the earliest game memories I have is just kind of like sitting around playing it with my cousins to see who would who would get the high score very interesting charlie brown nes game that is it's, about sport yeah yeah i know <laughs> right it's this. very very obscure it is so let me see I, i'm gonna go with snoopy's silly sports spectacular could that be it oh that might be it i can't remember its exact title you could you could be snoopy's degenerate cousin or uncle or whatever in it the guy with the mustache i was always him for some reason <laughs> snoopy and his brother spike facing yeah, yeah, up against yeah. each other in the sack race event <laughs> yeah that's definitely it that's definitely it the sack race yeah i remember that one maybe not real olympic events silly sports spectacular known in japan as donald duck <laughs> <laughs> Now, you've mentioned in the show several times, I believe, that your first language is actually French. Yeah, um, I learned I learned both at the same time, essentially. Uh, but I went to a French preschool and then French grade school from grades one through eight. Um, my, my dad doesn't speak French. So at home, it was kind of like a mix of, of both English and French. But at school, I always only spoke French. Um, so it was something that, that I probably smoke, spoke a lot more um, in my youth. But unfortunately, I have lost some of my French. The, the role of these languages early on in your, in your gaming you know, memories, they, they weren't an impediment or a way to improve your English or anything like that? You know, and, and maybe in some ways they were because uh, a lot of times too, like I didn't, I was always like a very heavy reader, both English and French. Um, but reading, one thing, like when I started playing, um, actually, I remember when my mom bought me Pokemon Blue for the Game Boy, I was actually sick in the hospital and I, I just told her, she's like, you know, what do you want? Like, cause I was in a really bad, I was in a rough spot there. Cause I was, I was actually really sick. And my mom's like, what do you, what would help you? And I said, Pokemon. Um, so she went out and she bought me Pokemon Blue. And there's actually in the original Pokemon, there's a, there's a warning that kind of comes with it that says, you know, you need to, and, and it became more popular to see these kind of things later on, but it was like, you need to be able to have good reading comprehension to fully enjoy Pokemon because it was like a full RPG with a lot of text. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I did read a lot, but it was, you know, I, I read mostly in French and my mom was just like, you know, are you going to be able to, to enjoy this game? And I'm like, and I'm like, Oh, I hope so. Cause I, I didn't know. And uh, it was, it was like a triumph for me that when I started playing Pokemon that I was able to fully, fully in, in digest the game and, you know, the, the language, language wasn't a problem for me and and then eventually you know things just became more english <laughs> you mentioned that 
that you had a Coleco at home? <laughs> so are you the youngest or the oldest? Or oh, your no, no. Siblings? I'm, I'm the youngest. I am. So you're, you're, you're the youngest. So probably your brothers or your siblings had, you know, I that think, Coleco. I think the Coleco was actually inherited from my uncle. Um, he had the Coleco and then, cause you know, we live, we live on the East coast of Canada here and he moved out West, but he left his Coleco with us, like with my dad, at least this is probably before I was born. Um, and, uh, I believe he just kind of left the Coleco with us and then you just like, Hey, cause I think, I think my brother was about to be born or was just born. And then my uncle was like, like, here's the Coleco. I believe is, is how that went down. But I, I obviously wasn't alive at the time. So I don't know the whole story. Um, but but it, it was my uncle's. It was my uncle. So then that you remember very early on at home, there was always that ColecoVision. Yeah, it eventually got completely unhooked. Once, once we did eventually get, I don't know if we ever got an NES. I think we went right to the Super. I don't remember ever owning an NES. So I, I believe we went right from Coleco, and then eventually my parents bought me Super Nintendo for Christmas. And then once once we got Super Nintendo, the Coleco got put in a box and then never saw the light of day ever again. Huh. Do you think that's laying around somewhere? <laughs> I've wondered. I've wondered. I have no idea whatever happened to that Coleco. I wish. I wish I had it, but no one lives in that house anymore. And I know my dad probably sold a lot of stuff whenever we got rid of the house. So I, I would imagine it's probably long gone somewhere. Hopefully someone is enjoying it. Now, tell me more about, you know, growing up, kind of like the next step after you playing and ES games at your cousin's place. Yeah. So, so that probably would have been jumping into the Super Nintendo era of my life, which was probably one of the best video game eras of my life anyways. Um, you know, Super Mario World played so, so many hours of, of that. Um, and then, and actually, so eventually I got really into, like, Rob, I was eventually, like, like enamored with, with RPGs and, and Final Fantasy. But it, for me, I know for him it started at Final Fantasy VII, I believe. For me, it started at, at Final Fantasy VI for Super Nintendo. And how it happened is, is yeah, maybe may funny. I'll tell the story anyway. So I was basically at, at home. And my parents were going out, so we, we got a babysitter who was the next-door neighbor. And I rented um, – do you remember – I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen the cartoon show Animaniacs. So I, I had a Super Nintendo game I rented um, called the, for, about the Animaniacs, and I was playing it. And it was all right, just like a side-scroller kind of game. Uh, so then the, uh, the, the individual who was babysitting me, he, he played a lot of video games. And uh, so he saw me playing Animaniacs, and he's just like – do you want to see a really cool game? And I was like, sure. So he, he had Final Fantasy VI and he was playing it. So he lived literally right next door to me. So he ran over and he grabbed his copy and he came back and then he was playing Final Fantasy VI. And then I was watching him. My brother and I were both watching him. And then like, it was like this light in both of our brains was just like, whoa, this game looks amazing. Um, and like that was when the love affair with, with Final Fantasy VI especially began. Um, because like after he left, my parents came home. Both my brother and I were like, we need, you need to buy us Final Fantasy VI. Like we both really, really want to play this game. It looks amazing. And then that's when we both started playing Final Fantasy games. What drew you to to a game like Final Fantasy? Like back then, were, were you into fantasy and science fiction-y kind of things? Absolutely, big time, big time. I was very much so into sword and sorcery. 
as as it is known as. I didn't know it as that at the time, but um, that I was very much so into that. And this was a really and I and I always lo- I loved stories. I did love stories. Um, and uh, you know the the guy who introduced the game to us kind of he didn't tell us the story, but he he basically he was really far in the game. And then he kind of told us he's like, oh yeah, there's like a whole bunch of this stuff that led to this point. And then I was just like. So just, I wanted to know what happened because, you know, you know, spoilers, he was in the world of ruin and he told me that like, oh yeah, the world got destroyed and this is the world that was destroyed and that he used to play in the world that wasn't destroyed. And I was like, I got to see this happen. I got to see how a world gets destroyed and then people still move on in it. Um, so uh, I was, I, it was, it was definitely the story aspect and just, I was always, I've always been a big fan of, of fantasy um, and, and, and such. So I was just very much so wanting to try the game out for, for myself. This was a little bit afterwards, but my my father was always afraid that I played too many video games and I didn't read enough, even though I did read quite a bit. Um, and I always wanted to read the Lord of the Rings book. And then he, he challenged me to read the first Lord of the Rings book in a year, and he would give me $100. So I did it. And then I used that $100 to buy more video games. mentioned your your father being kind of worried about you playing games um, oh, bo- both my parents to be honest thought that i played way too many video games what was the relationship with your parents uh regarding gaming you know it was it was never negative like they they always they they just encouraged me to to go outside more like there's that famous story of i think uh, i told you where i was like my mom wanted me to go outside. I wanted to stay inside to play video games. So I went outside, purposely hurt myself. So I go inside to play video games. Um, so, you know, that that was a thing that happened. But, you know, I, I was a normal kid. I didn't just sit inside all the time and play video games. But um, I uh, was the, definitely the kind of kid that my mom was always like, you know, if it's a nice day out, I want you to go outside and play. But if it's a rainy day, then you're fine to just stay inside and play video games all day. So on the weekend, I would always be like, is it going to rain? Is it going to rain? And just like hoping for rain because I want to stay inside and play video games all the time. Um, but it, you know, they they never really cared too much um, about about what I played or, or how much I played, as long as as I struck a, the appropriate balance, which I think is still necessary for anybody. You know, it's not good for anyone to sit in front of their their TV screen and play video games twenty four hours a day, kind of thing. Uh, what about your your friends growing up? Were they also into games as much as you were? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, early on, one of my my earliest childhood friend was probably into games far more than I was, and uh, you know he didn't have any kind of limitations like I did, where my parents were were told telling me to go outside and play. Um, his his parents never really seemed to care. Um, so a lot of the times when I was told to go outside, I would just go to my friend's house and play video games too. Um, so he he was definitely allowed to to do so, and then I just kind of took advantage of the fact that his parents didn't care. Um, but but yeah, no, all my friends were very much so into video games. 
Was there a point growing up where either your friends grew out of gaming or did it happen to you that at some point you just were like, oh, games are for kids and then you just stopped playing? You know, I don't think I ever really stopped playing games and uh, myself anyways. Like, I don't I don't have a lot of contact with some of my old friends. Um, my My best friend who, you know, between the ages of like 16 and 20, I'd say, we we played a lot of games at that age and uh, I don't, he lives, he lives out in, in BC. So I don't, I don't see him very often. Um, so he usually visits once a year and we, we kind of hang out. Um, but it doesn't seem like he plays a whole lot of video games anymore. That's for sure. Cause he comes over and then he, he, he still likes video games, but he'll come over and then he'll usually be all like, what's the new video game? What are you playing? Like it's something that interests him, but like, he's not going to go out and buy you know, a switch, for example. But when he comes over, he was like, Oh, let, like I hear there's a new smash bros. Cause we used to play smash bros all the time. He's like, let's, I want to try the new smash bros. So like he uses me as his like one year, like I get to play this video game. Um, but it doesn't seem like a lot of my old friends still actively play a whole lot of video games. So what do you think it was unique to your process of growing up and sticking with games? I don't know. Did I ever mention that like when I was a kid, I was really sick all the time. Like I had chronic migraines. I actually had a heart problem um, and I had severe asthma and, and, and things like that. And they, they did keep me up um, in bed a lot. Like there was, there was a long time where I was not really able to do a whole lot with myself. And I actually spent three months of my life in the hospital once. Um, because I had low hemoglobin, which is basically I had a bad immune system. So for me, video games were always there for me in, in, in trying times, you know, like I was, I was pretty alone. Um, cause you know, my mom was there, but she still had things to do. Um, so she wasn't always there with me at the hospital. But uh, I always had games to to rely on. There always was was that escape for me to to not just sit and dwell and, and stew in my condition. Um, so so games have always kind of had this this special thing for me where you know it, it, it's it's escapism, but it's healthy escapism. And you know if you if you just need to get your mind off something for a little bit, go go play yourself a game and. It's it's been a therapeutic thing for me, and and uh, in a lot of cases, and I don't think I'd ever want to stop playing video games. I think that for a lot of us that have stayed with games as as much as we do, you know, to a point of, you know, you either choose it as a career or you generate content about it. You don't stop like thinking about it and stuff like that. I think we all have like some sort of a special relationship with them. But would you agree that there is in our society still? Um, it, it is changing all the time, but there is a stigma with video games in adulthood. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt, and uh, and fortunately, like in in if you work in games, it's pretty easy to talk to other adults about about games because you all work in games like we all do, and it's you know of course people who work in a video game studio play games in their free time, um, but when you're trying to meet people outside of that there is kind of this weird stigma of being like hey do you play video games i play video games because it sounds so childish um to just be like yeah i play video games and stuff like that so it's it's <laughs> I, 
I think, I think what, what do you call them? Normies <laughs> yeah. um, to try to talk about video games with, with the quote unquote normies can sometimes be kind of awkward because they, they may not fully understand, you know, that it's not like, you know, video games. Yeah. They're, they, they can be for kids, but they're, they're not really, especially nowadays, they're not as much marketed solely to children like they used to be. Um, so there, there is a stigma. Um, it's it's depends who you talk to really um but it's not uncommon to find people that are just like oh that's weird why do you play video games and you're 30 years old yeah why why do you think that is different from you know people watching movies and reading books and and even like uh i'm not talking about the more serious ones but there's a lot of adults out there that watch animation that, that uh that read fantasy books, but I, I don't feel it has the same stigma as video games as a whole. You know, yeah. not, not just like the silly ones, but you know, there's a lot of a, uh, mature themed games, but still like games are all put in a basket of, you know, of silliness and childish stuff. You know, I would, I would say because like for such a long time, it was so heavily marketed towards kids and some people may not be as aware of, you know, mature rated games, I suppose. Not not that I only play mature rated games, though, obviously. Like, we still play Mario. We still play games um, that are, you know, kid games, in quotes. Um, but, like, it's kind of blurring the line nowadays between what, what a kid will play and what an adult will play. Because it's a lot of times it's the same thing. And in even a lot of cases, like you get this weird stuff going on too, where it's just like all the kids play call of duty and adults would prefer to play Splatoon. So there's this weird disconnect where you think it would be the other way around. You think the kids would be playing the more highly colorful game and the adults would be playing the realistic shooter, but it seems really inverted on, on that thought. And I think, I think a lot of the time that's because I think kids just want that adult experience. And I think adults want to relive, you know, their childhood. So they want to play the more, you know, kind of, you know, colorful kid looking games. Um, so I think, I think for adults, it's, it's a way to relive their childhood. And I think for kids, it's a way for them to act like adults. Yeah. Good point. I think that it has to do with the quality of playing in general, because you, you know, that quote in, in, in back to the future where, like Marty plays a video game and the other kids say, oh, you have to use your hands, that's for, that's for babies. I think there's there's a little bit of that in this, like playing, you know, that, that concept of playing. It, it seems like it is not for adults anymore. Right? Yeah, it, you, you, absolutely. And, and you know, I think I think that that can translate fairly well to even, even playing sports. Because, you know, while adults play sports, you, you know, as a kid... It was you were very serious about you know your your little league soccer baseball hockey games, um, and because you always felt like there was potential for you to be a, a professional, right? And as as an adult, you know any sport playing is going to be done in an adult recreational league where things are way less serious than than little leagues, even though the difference is literally adults versus children. But there's so much more pressure on children to play these games because you can you can do something with it. Um, so I think I think even even as an adult, anything that has to do with play kind of feels like you're shunning your your adulthood because you're playing a game whether it's a video game or you're 
playing soccer outside. Sometimes it just kind of feels like you shouldn't be playing because you should supposed to be a responsible adult. Yeah, I was having a conversation with Shelby the other day about this, and I was telling her that I, I think that even for the people that is in the industry, it can be hard to be an adult, a responsible adult, as you say, and, you know, finding the time to spend playing games. It makes you feel guilty. It makes you think like you could be doing some other things, maybe related to, you know, uh, making money, right? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, some sort of economical activity, yeah. you know. But I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me to... I think it, it comes with age. You know, once you get to a certain age, then you start having, I guess, less doubts of who you are, maybe. And what are you supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be, you know, enjoying life and having that life and work balance and all that kind of thing. It's also very cultural, of course. Um, but, you know, I I have my notes here and I'm, and I'm reading them. And I want to read you a little bit of, of my notes because it's interesting. There's this guy called, I don't know if I'm if I'm pronouncing his name right, but it's Johan Huizinga. That's how it's spelled. And he wrote a book in 1938, so it's pretty old, 1938, so imagine that world. And it's called Homo Ludens. And he's, he writes in that book that games were a primary condition of the generation of human cultures. Wrap your head around that, because I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it, so I'm going to read it again. So it says that games were a primary condition of the generation of human cultures. And he saw that the playing of games as something that is older than culture, for culture, however, inadequately defined, always presupposes human society. And animals have not waited for man to teach them their playing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and lastly, it says, Huizinga saw games as a starting point for complex human activities such as language, law, war, philosophy, and art. What do you think about all that? You know, it's very heavy, um, but there, there's definitely truth to that. Um, so one one thing that that so here here's something in in regards to just games in general, not not so much video games though. I'm going to actually switch to my other hobby a little bit here, and this is war gaming. Um, so that's when you have your your little models and you move them around a table and then you you engage in battles. Um, so it's it's a hobby that 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 I've been involved with for the past year or two, anyways, um, and so how wargaming kind of got its start basically there was a prussian military officer in like the 1800s who was designing military training scenarios and then he created basically a game um where you know you would have your cavalry your infantry and your cannons and then you would then compete against you know other people and then using real world military tactics um and then, then that's how he was training people for the military. And then, you know, quite a bit later, it was the author, H.G. Wells, who actually found um, the, the training game um, that was created and then turned that into what is kind of modern wargaming. Um, so every, so, so wargaming basically began as a training exercise for actual military use um, and then kind of has evolved and evolved and evolved to, to what we know it today. Definitely games feel like a symptom of just kind of cultural advancement a lot of the times.
advancement in societies and in cultures, I, I, I always think that there is this component of people using their imaginations in ways that are playful, you know? Because when, when he's saying that if that games are a starting point for language, and, and you, you think about language and when you're reading a language and, and the things that you're that you're doing, well, I mean, what is it? It's like rules and stuff to learn yeah. and then putting them in creative form so that it, it's always about, you know, revealing your mind, right? So what is in your mind and how it works? And it's very, it can be very structured and then playful and humor and all these things that don't really have any purpose you know what i mean like, yeah yeah <laughs> like why 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 do we tell jokes like why do we laugh it, it doesn't have it, it doesn't like if you created like a, a robot society right to do something and to live like it seems like these things they don't have any purpose right yeah but people still do it and, and 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 they get a lot of enjoyment out of you know jokes and games and sports and all these things that you know they seem superfluous yeah but that's part of just the human condition i think to to want to always be want to learn to want to improve yourself um and you know i i just i i think that's just part of the human condition and you're right like if a society of robots they would have no use for probably 80 percent of the crap that humans have, <laughs> have churned out over the years um because a lot of it is just you know what we want to experience, like what we want to feel. And, and that's the cool thing about, about games is that, especially, you know, there's a variety of different games, you know, if, if you want to feel powerful, you know, there's games for that. If you want to feel strategic and tactical, you know, there's games for that. If you want to feel sad, there's games for that. Um, so I think, I think that like, it's very much so just a part of the human condition that people want to feel things and everyone has, their own way of, of going about it. You know, how do I want to feel this thing? Some people read novels, some people write, some people play video games. Um, so I, I just, I think it's just kind of part of, of trying to feel alive as, as a person. And the point stands in, in what this guy is saying is that, yeah, we think of these things as, as not necessary or silly or whatever, but still they're present in all societies. So we, a way of, of seeing it is that it's not that they're there for, you know, to make us cope with stuff. It's just that it's necessary for, for culture to exist, for culture to advance. Games need to be there somehow. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Like, even, even, like, ancient cultures all had their games. Like, games yeah. have been around since the dawn of time, as far as I know, anyways. Like, the Romans, I talk about the Romans a lot, and they loved their games. Big oh, yeah. festivals and gladiator fights, like they're to them that was that was their games, right? Um, oh, yeah. So you're, you're you're not wrong that it's just like every every culture has had games, and yeah, I, it would be it would be a crazy social experiment to see a culture without games. You know what? How would they have evolved? What kind of attitudes would they have to have never experienced games? Would they be you know, less joyful of a people had they not experienced some sort of games at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. And now we have this society where a lot of us, you know, there, there are entertainment industries and, and we decide to, to pursue careers in it. Like when did it first like dawn on you that you wanted to, you know, pursue a career in games? So 
it i fell into it to be honest i never like when i was a kid it was always that thing when you're just like oh it would be so cool to make video games yeah like like i always had that as a mentality um but i never thought it to be a very likely course from from my particular life um and like i i never really thought i was going to work in games um, for the longest time, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I have about pages and pages and pages of 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 short stories and stuff that that I wanted to try to publish and that I wanted to write. And I had this dream in my head that I want to write the story of a video game. That was my biggest goal in life. Um, but I never really looked at that. I, I looked at I looked at be more, far more likely that I was ever going to be a writer then, you know, maybe not a super successful one, but, you know, a writer, um, than ever working in the video game industry. Um, and then literally just kind of fell into my lap one day. Um, I, I worked at a, at a call center. It got shut down. I went on unemployment for a month. I had a friend who started working at uh, the, the game studio where, where I met you and Rob. And then once the call center closed down, she was like, hey, you used to be my boss. You should you should apply here. So I did, and then I kind of got the job, and then that's that's been what we've been I've been doing for a while now, <laughs> I guess. Yes, it kind of fell onto you, but like she tells you, hey, there's this game, and it's in games, and you decide, you know, whatever your conditions of employment might have been, like what what were your thoughts, you know, when you were like actually filling out the application? Yeah, and and so. So I, I hate to admit it, but I, I, I will. Um, when I first got the job, I was that typical guy whose first job as, as, a, as a QA in video games being like, my job is to play video games, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that common misconception, right? Um, so, that, so then I was kind of hit with a little bit of a, of a rude awakening that uh, I don't know anything about doing quality assurance on video games. And I have no idea why they decided to give me that job. Um, so I was very, very overwhelmed pretty much right out of the gate um, at, at that job. Luckily, I made good friends with, uh, with someone and they kind of took me under their wing and actually taught me how to do the job properly. Um, without him, I would have been probably totally lost in the job. Um, cause I remember I wanted to quit after two weeks cause I just felt so lost and so intimidated working there. Um, and then luckily I, uh, I had, uh, I had someone, you know, recognize that. I don't know if he just wanted to be friends or what, but we struck up a friendship and then he taught me, you know, mostly how, how to do the job properly. Exactly. What did you imagine like your, your, because you have work experience, you know how companies are, right? Yes. You go and you have to do stuff and you have to write a report or whatever. So what did you think it was going to be? So I thought that it was just literally going to be, you play the game, you give us feedback on the game, and then and then that's it. Like, I, I, I that's pretty much all I thought it was. Um, mm-hmm. That it's just kind of an exercise, more or less, um, in in feedback for the game. Like I, like I said, I didn't really have a good understanding of what QA was at the time, but uh, I just thought that I was going to be playing video games. I don't think anybody has like a good idea of what QA is until <laughs> you actually do QA. Yeah, exactly, right? Because that's the thing. Because it's it's the easiest one to just think that you just 
playing video games all day. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then you go into it, and then you say you got lost and you had a hard time, specifically with, with what? Like, what was so overwhelming to you? Um, well, the, the, one of the bigger things that was overwhelming is, is I'm a little better now, but at the time, I had a complete zero knowledge about programming. Um, and, uh, and honestly, I, I, I had no idea how a video game was made. I didn't understand all the moving pieces involved to put a game together. Um, I thought there was programmers and then that there was artists and then that was it. That that's, those are the things that the end user experiences most of the time. Like those are the things that, that they'll see. Um, so that's all. And then I thought everything else very secondary to those two disciplines. Um, and then, so kind of getting involved in the actual process of seeing how a game is made. So it was it was a little bit of a shock when it's just like all this stuff going on. Um, and then, uh, the, honestly, one of the things that that was very intimidating was the people. But having met people that were immensely more, I don't want to say intelligent than I am, but they were very, very skilled at what they could do. Um, and it was very intimidating for me as a newbie quality assurance individual to be like, this is what's wrong. Cause like, I, I don't felt that I have, you know, the, the credentials to be telling you what's wrong with your game. Um, and that was something that I had to deal with. Yeah, I guess confidence was something that, that was required. But when you first start a new job, you don't have a whole lot of confidence because it's your first time ever doing it. So it was, it was, it was very difficult for me to try to tell people what, what I thought was a problem with the game. You know, some things are obvious. You know, a bug is a bug. Um, but some things are a little less, you know, black and white. And it was not always easy for me to try to point these out to these people who, who I actually looked at as, you know, very, very talented, skilled people. So I'm just like, who, who am I to tell you that this is wrong? Um, so that, that, don't get me wrong, that was like a personal issue that I had to overcome um, when I first started working there. But that, that was a big thing is uh, I don't think anyone meant to intimidate me, but, but people did because everyone was just is very talented. And I felt like I didn't have any talent. Um, and, uh, it was, it was tough at first. Yeah. It's a very interesting insight. Do you think other members of the team had similar experiences in regards you know, with the credentials and all this and, and your feelings of inadequacy? Um, did you comment on with the other testers about stuff like this? Well, when I, when I started, I started with two other individuals and both of them had experience, um, so immediately I kind of felt like the odd man out because they both, one of them had programming experience and the other one just had simple QA experience prior to, to that particular job. Um, so I immediately felt like I was the weakest of the newbies. Um, so that, that kind of put me off on, on a bad foot. And then the more I spoke to other people, the more I realized they have strong backgrounds and I, my background is pretty much like I worked at call centers most of my life. Um, now, fortunately, um, if anyone does work at a call center, I'll tell you right now, a lot of your skills that you develop at a call center translate fairly well to testing games because a big part of your job at a call center is note taking. 
Um, you, if you, if you're going to be good at that job, you need to master notes. Um, and QA is a very, very much so similar to that. You need to have excellent note-taking skills as you go. Um, so I, I had that skill, you know, in my wheelhouse, but I wasn't sure how to apply it to games. Um, but that, that's, that's what I felt was my skill that I was bringing forth. Um, and quite frankly, the only person I felt was like on the same, like new, you know, as much as I did, which was not that much, was my friend Leanne who helped me get the job because she didn't have any prior QA experience. But she she's an individual brimming with such confidence that, you know, I don't think it ever really bothered her. And she just soared through the top. Um, well, I had a more confidence issue going into it. Do you feel like the others had similar feelings to what you did? Is this something that testers talk about when they're alone? (laughs) (laughs) So one, one interesting thing that, that happened to me in my new job. So when I got this new job, um, everyone immediately was like, everyone knew where I used to work. And some people were, were very much so like, oh, that's really cool. Like, you must know a lot. And I'm like, I know enough. Like, you know, I had going into my new job at the new studio, I, I was, I'm brimming with confidence. So it was, it's a complete polar shift from the other, other job I had where I, I felt no confidence. I, I built up the confidence and now I'm applying it at my new job. And I kind of feel like they're reaping the rewards um, of my hard work at the old place, which is kind of funny. Um so, and one thing that, that actually happened to me is that, so when I, when I started, there was about four or five other people that started with me, all of them having absolutely zero experience doing QA. Um, so I was immediately singled out as, you know, this guy has done it before. Um, so I was immediately mentoring um, all of the new people because they they were they were in a similar boat. They felt intimidated and they felt like they didn't know what they were doing because literally one of them had never really even worked a desk job in an office before. He worked at a butcher shop, um, so he felt very very much so inadequate at testing games. Um, so he he went to me quite a bit and and he basically he would write up a ticket for a bug and then he got me to read the ticket multiple times on on multiple bugs i mean um to kind of be like hey does this make sense is expect to see you know as a qa ticket um and i helped him and a few other people out um and and even today like i still have people that are just being like hey what how would you word this and stuff like that um to people that that have been working there for you know a number of months with me um, but uh, I kind of went from being the guy who who was, you know, no confidence, I don't know what I'm doing, someone help me, to being the guy who who other people now feel like I have no confidence, please help me. And, you know, I've been I've been helping them out as, as best as I can. So there's been a, a real role reversal um going on with the the new job, which has been kind of an interesting, interesting thing for me to go through. But uh, definitely, I would I would say, yeah, there's a lot of especially because like you say, like QA, a lot of the times they, they don't hire people that, you know, necessarily have this broad programming knowledge. Um, but sometimes they'll just they'll just pick people who they like, who they think will be a good fit with the team. Um, and because QA is something that anyone could learn. 
um, if you really apply yourself and really do it. I'm sure that applies to a lot of disciplines, but there's there's less skill to get involved at the ground level. Um, so sometimes, you know, you'll you'll get someone who, like I said, like he worked in a butcher shop. He doesn't have a whole lot of even office experience. Um, so just even that in general was something that that he had to get used to. But though sometimes other kind of people they they hire to do kind of this baseline QA work. Um, um, and, and those people definitely feel, you know, that they can they can feel kind of intimidated. I, I believe it's a pretty common feeling due to how the the department is recruited. Um, you know, you can if you recruit a, a team of all star QA, you know, that may not be a problem. But you know, when you're look looking at you know where we live, well, where I live, um, it's not like you're you have a a, a giant pool of people you know it's not a giant city where you know you can take the best of the best you know sometimes you're going to need to take what you can get and then you're going to need to train those individuals um and i so i, I think here you know in, in a small town where we live where i live is gonna probably see that sort of environment more with some people who, who don't feel as confident um while if maybe in a bigger city things will probably be a little bit different because there's a greater pool of people to choose from. Um, and there might be more talent, to be honest, to choose from. I think uh, part of the issue is how recruiters market this position. I used to live in a very small town. Then I moved to a bigger city. It's the capital of the state, so it's big. has a lot of people. Not a lot of people. I mean, it's not a major city in the world, but, you know, from the re the region that I was, was a major your point of, of population, I guess. So they had a lot of services, you know, what you, you would expect from a medium-sized city. But it never, ever had any sort of video game company in there. And so it happens that this company comes to town and starts hiring people. And I remember them having like um, some sort of vehicles, like marketing vehicles, and they will go around town with big, like, uh, flashy signs saying, hey, you want to get paid to play <laughs> games? But it was very, <laughs> very overt like that. Like, it wasn't like uh, uh, um, any sort of gray. It was black and white, you know, uh, um, explicit question of you want to get paid to play games. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. It's like, like those old commercials where you got to tighten the graphics up on level three or whatever it is. Do you think that it's not so much, you know, perception, but also how these positions are actually sold to those, you know, first time testers? Yeah, that, that could be a problem with it for sure. Because like, like no, no one ever just told me, oh, you know, for, for me, it, it wasn't like that. It was never like, oh, yeah, you're being no one ever sat down with me being like, yeah, you're being paid to play video games. Like, I, I just I just had that misconception myself. Um so I I never really experienced it like like you did, where it's just these you know very kind of blanket statements of you know yeah have fun playing video games where it feels more like a scam than than a real job or anything like that. Um, but I, it it could definitely be a problem, you know. And I think I have met a fair share of people, in my opinion, who do QA, who who don't have the best conception even about what their own job is um a lot of people just like see one one thing that that i have done quite a bit of in 
my current my current job is they actually had me just doing play tests, which are 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 very just like you would expect the misconception to be where it's just play the game just play the game and then give us give us the feedback you know i i have done that before um but that is not the common thing to do um it's only something that typically happens near the end of a game cycle of development cycle anyways from 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 what i've experienced um so you can there is some room for that misconception to actually be applied, but it's not a very common thing, and it's not something that everyone's going to be doing. But I do feel sometimes that there are even some people that I've, I've, who I've just recently met at my new job who have been working in, in QA for years, and they just kind of act like playtesters. Um, so I think, I think that there is you know, a little bit of a problem with some people, not, not everybody. I think, I think the majority of people are great. Um, but there's this just, I think there's always a few people who just, I don't know, I don't want to say abuse their jobs, but they just kind of like sit around and like, they give like not constructive feedback, but just being, that's saying stupid things like, why does this not work? And so I think, I think that there's, there's some people in QA that, that kind of still have that misconception um, and that doesn't really help things out whenever you're trying to educate new people on, on how to actually do the job properly. Okay, so here's the thing, like, I know, and I think you know, and I think everybody working in games know that working, making games is a privilege, right? For sure. Because you're doing something that is, like, in general, like, w- would you agree that making games is fun? Without a doubt, you know, I, I like, I have never had the professional satisfaction that I had seeing a game that I helped, you know, work on go live. You know, that is such a rewarding feeling that I have not seen or that I have sorry, that I've not felt, you know, in other other jobs that I've ever worked. Um so so the biggest driving force for me to work in games is 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 that feeling to be honest because the first time content was released um that I worked on, you know, it was it wasn't for a game that I was super excited about. I didn't play the game very actively but i started playing it because i thought it was so fucking cool to be able to be part of that pipeline and to actually see what i did go live um and it's a really rewarding feeling um which is you know to me one of the biggest reasons why i want to keep working in gaming because i want to keep 
having that feeling um, that that it's very rewarding to kind of just see see something that you and and a bunch of other awesome people you know that they got to create and it's it's a really really fun feeling um want to have your your thoughts on on bonus barrel you've been a, a part of it almost since the beginning just about but it's never been super clear to me how was it that yours and Rob's roads crossed and how you got actually invited to that first episode because I think you and I we were working together yep like actually in the in in the same team yeah and you we literally sat across from one another but we had <laughs> barely any, any interaction with one another because you intimidated me um that was <laughs> one of the reasons why I I never really talked to you uh, I I would have I would have felt like you would not have taken anything I said seriously the thing is, when I'm at work, like, I don't do much. Like, I'm just sitting there and I don't talk to anybody. Like, I'm not really, like, social in that kind of way. And I was just, like, there probably, you know, just doing or saying much. Like, how? Like, why? Like, th did I say anything to you? Like, it was nothing you said. It was, like, like I'm sure you knew that people called you the wizard, right? And so it was it was intimidating to me because I'm just like, oh, man, this guy's a wizard. You don't want to so mess with the wizard. Um, but yes, yeah. the, the Rob question, the Rob question. So how how that goes back is that I was looking at trying to create my own content, video game related on YouTube. I was going to start doing some game reviews, some silly game shows. I got a capture card. I was going to start doing some stuff, but I had no idea what to do. I just know that I wanted to do something. Um, and then... I met Megan, who's Rob's, you know, paramour, and uh, I met her, and she lent me a video game and uh, uh, Fire Emblem. And then I met Rob because I had to give the game back, but I don't think Megan was there at the time, so I gave it back to Rob. And that's when I first met Rob. Um, and then he, I think I think he mentioned Bonus Barrel when I met him, and then I went back to my desk. I listened to all three episodes that were out at the time. I think it was, <laughs> and uh, and I and you know I really liked it. It was amazing. Um, and then uh, I don't remember exactly if I said, you know, can I can I be on an episode, or if or if Rob invited me for an episode. I don't remember who initiated that, um, but it was something that that I wanted to do. And I didn't know how to do it. I did, and, and I also didn't really want to do it by myself because I didn't want the whole responsibility just to be on me. Um, and then, so I did, I did, well, I did, we did two episodes because that was back in the day when we would record two episodes at once. Um, and then it just kind of took off, I guess. Like it just kind of, we just kept going with it. Like at first I was supposed to be a guest and then, but then I think Marshall kind of stepped down. And then that's when it was like permanent. Huh. So you don't actually remember <laughs> how it happened. I, I don't, I don't remember who initiated. I don't remember if, if I asked or if Rob invited me, I don't remember. I'm curious if Rob does, um, but I don't, I don't exactly remember how that happened. Four years and a half after we started Bonus Barrel. Now, to me, this is second nature, and we're doing this. We're recording. We're talking. Of, like I moved, and we're still in contact and all that. So, so to me, Bonus Barrel has a, a, a 
a big role in my in my life in the last few years and and and, and it has a lot of meaning but um what about for you like how, how do you feel about it looking back at it you know certainly similar you know it, it has been a big part of my life um and it starting off like you know you would do it and you would you know criticize yourself you know very thoroughly you know you hated i hated the way my voice sounded that you know everyone kind of goes through that when you hear your voice recorded um but it, it, that all goes away you know every all of those doubts and and you know i remember one thing rob whenever we first started rob always talked about how it would be good if we could take improv classes because that would really help with you know doing a podcast and I absolutely believe that that would be the case. Um, now we never obviously never really did that. Um, but I think we grew into, you know, we, we grew into our voice into what bonus barrel is. And it's really fun to see kind of the evolution of bonus barrel, you know, from what it was to what it is now. And, and I definitely feel that we're far more confident in just kind of how we, we, we go about things, you know, back in the day, you know, I always, even when I would say an opinion about something, you know, this, this is how this game felt to me, you know, I would be afraid that somebody out there, as if we had this huge audience, would be like, you're wrong. It, you know, not only is your opinion wrong, like, but like, you're just, you're just wrong on that. Um, so it was, for me, it was kind of a, a little bit nervous of a thing to just, you know, put my foot in my mouth, you know, on a recording, um, was, was something I was always afraid of, but, but, but now, you know, I feel far more confident and, uh, in just being able to, to voice my opinion and, and, you know, if, if someone disagrees with it, fine, they can. Um, but no one, no one can say that my opinion's wrong. Like I would never, I would never feel bad about voicing my opinion on my own podcast, but I used to, um, I would still do it, but you know, you would have this kind of anxiety building up in it. And, uh, so it, it certainly has taught me confidence in myself, um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, that's something that's great. Um, and then, you know, the next thing is, is, is the friendship that I've developed with, with you, Rob and Shelby, you know, you're my closest friends a lot of the times, like you're people I, I talk to. Um, so for me, that's, that's one of the main things. And, you know, I know it's easy I haven't been around as much lately doing the actual podcast. Um, but like, I'm still in heavy contact with all three of you guys. Um, so for me, this, the camaraderie of bonus barrel is, uh, you know, long lasting. And I think it'll be long lasting even after, you know, God forbid bonus barrel dies. Um, you know, I don't, I don't expect the friendship that has, grown around bonus barrel to ever die um so it's uh, it's it's been it's been one hell of a ride and i don't i don't want to say that as if it's the ride's ending because it's not um but it's uh it's been a journey and it's it's cool to see how it evolved and uh just it's been it's been great um overall for my professional life i feel like it it, is, it has helped me with games a lot more and my personal life it, it it gives you something to do and um you know it it helps build those friendships and you know i've had friends move to where you you are and i have lost touch with them 
Um, but yet, for some reason, although you have moved across the country, I'm still in contact with you. Um, so it, it kind of goes to show, you know, the, the power, the staying power that, that, you know, Bonus Barrel really has for us. So this is the, um, the final part of, of the episode. And basically, I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions. There are 10 questions and they're about, you know, games and feelings and stuff like that. You okay? Yep, let's do it. All right. So the first question is a game that you love. Game that I love. Mega Man X. A game you hate. It's tricky. It's hard to hate a game, especially after working in games. Like Rob has said before that even bad games, you see the amount of work that goes into it. So it's hard to hate on a game. Um, but if I have to hate on a game, it's because I think the developers are terrible liars. So I'm going to say No Man's Sky. Uh, Games-wise, what turns you on? Uh, tactics. I like, I like a, lot of, a lot of tactical depth in my games. What turns you off? Too much voiceovers, because ever since meeting you and your dislike of cutscenes, it has actually really spoken to me over time. And uh, I've had a really hard time playing games that interrupt my gameplay with 10 minute long cutscenes and voiceovers. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, those are very, very bad. A sound effect that you love. So a lot of the times in, in a lot of older RPGs, you would reach a save point and then there'd be like a sound effect. You know, if in Mario RPG, when you jump on the star block to save or in Final Fantasy VI, when you find one of those little shiny save points, you hear a ding. Um, those points in games have always been very, very like, okay, I just, over, I just overcame this challenge. I'm going to save it. So you get that sa sound effect of a save or, oh, I got to fight this very powerful boss. I got to save it before. So the, the save um, sound effect of video games uh, resonate very, very deeply within me. Mm -hmm. A sound effect that you hate? I guess game over screen sound effects. That seems like a, a blanket answer, but I'm just going to go with it. Because like, I have no idea. So I'm just going to say a sound effect that, that plays when you die in the game. Um, next question is your favorite in-game power-up. Favorite in-game power-up? I just, I keep thinking Mega Man because that's, every time anyone says power up, I just think Mega Man. I know mm -hmm. other games have power ups, but that game is all about power ups. So I'll probably go with just getting, getting the, honestly, just getting the ability to, I, you, you can't miss it, but getting the ability to dash in Mega Man X is such a game changer. So I, I have to go with that. I have to go with that. Next question is a game character that you would like to be. See, very, video game characters live pretty, pretty hectic, tumultuous lives. Like, I'm not sure I would want to be any video game character because they're, they're, I don't like, I like playing video games and fighting things in video games, but I don't like fighting things in real life. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it feels like being a video game character would be a hard job because you got to fight things. You're fighting for your life a lot of the times. <laughs> like it's a, it's a truly traumatic life. Um, so I don't know if I would want to be any video game character. Um, but uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna be kind of weird, and I'm gonna say I want to if I could be a video game character. <sighs> Kefka became a god in Final Fantasy VI, so I'm gonna say Kefka. 
<laughs> nice. Uh, and a, a game character that you most definitely would not like to be. Not want to be. I don't think I would want to be Bowser. You know, mm. I, Bowser gets shit on a lot by an Italian plumber. So I, I don't think I'd want to be Bowser. And this is the last question. So imagine you could play any game, real or imaginary. What game would that be? Sorry, I might, I might take longer to answer this than, than I should. But um, when I I was reading a lot, a few, uh, was it seven, seven years ago, something like that? I was reading a lot about Napoleon. And I wanted to play a video game that had Napoleon in it. That, you know, battles, cannons, things like that. And that's when I discovered Total War games. Because there's, a, there's, a, there's an expansion to Empire called Napoleon Total War. So I bought Napoleon Total War. And I love Total War games. I think they're amazing. But they don't really do actual military tactics. It's, it's a very video game version of tactics. So I would like to actually play a game that you know probably like a, a rome style game where where the battles and the troop numbers and the way how long a battle would would take in real life would be perfectly simulated in a video game um rather than like a pure video game version of total war a hyper realistic simulation of of a battle in in like ancient rome times 